Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill, busting myths and taking names. Hello, Buzzkillers. It's the professor here, and we're so totally stoked because today on the line via the internets, we have Dr. Julia Rose Kraut here to talk to us about her new book, which comes out today called The Threat of Dissent, A History of Ideological Exclusion and Deportation in the United States. Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Kraut. My pleasure. Thank you. We should tell the Buzzkillers that you're a lawyer and historian, and you were the inaugural Judith S.K. Fellow for the Historical Society of the New York Courts. And this is the first, you're the first person we've had, well, one of the very few people we've had on the show who really genuinely does interdisciplinary work. And I think the book is absolutely fascinating. Oh, thank you so much. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the sort of themes of the book, the overall themes of the book? Because I don't think a lot of our listeners are going to know what's meant by ideological exclusion. They're used to stories of exclusions based on race and ethnicity at Ellis Island or in San Francisco or anything. But ideological exclusion sounds like something that's not been studied enough. That's right. And this, in fact, is the first book to exclusively trace the legal, social, and political history of the barring and expulsion of foreign non-citizens from the United States based Mm -hmm. on their political beliefs, expressions, and associations. And that's what I mean by ideological exclusion and deportation. And I trace this history from the Alien Friends Act of 1798 to today's War on Terror. Some of the themes that I address include kind of the the focus of this is is really to provide a fresh perspective on the intersection of immigration and First Amendment law and history. Mm -hmm. And um, it serves as a window into understandings of national identity and security, sovereignty, xenophobia, nativism, foreign policy, dissent, and censorship. Uh, It seems to me that it's it's is one of these things, of course, of course, that needs more attention, but it also shows that the government during all the whole period that you study, which of course is all the way from 1798 till now, uh, is, is really very 
active and looking out for, okay, we know that this group is a bunch of Italian radicals coming over and we don't want them not necessarily because they're Italian ancestry, but of their radical or anarchist ancestry. So it's, it's, it's almost as if there had, had to have been versions of a department of ideological exclusion within the state department or, or whatever. I know, I know that wasn't actually the case, but it does seem remarkable how extensive these laws and practices became. Well, what I found is that as the more I learned about this history and I present it in a chronological narrative, uh-huh. I highlight kind of some of the consistencies and continuities over time by tracing the law through. And what you okay. see is, is that there's a lot of, you know, the, the focus on, in when you read immigration law and history is often on race, ethnicity, nationality, kind of health uh, restrictions, moral uh, labor, uh, economic status. But this is actually, it's, it, it runs through the 20th and the 21st century um, and is one of the restrictions among others. And so what I do is I take this history and I examine over this long period of time the underlying dynamic, dynamics and motivations behind the passage and enforcement of these ideological exclusion deportation laws, including mm-hmm. the tensions within pre, um, presidential administrations and between public officials. And then I also describe the legal and non-legal actors who implemented or challenged these laws, as well as those deported or excluded under them. And some of these officials chose to use their authority and discretion under the law to deport or exclude more or less. And so that's that's really kind of where the story is. But it's really an untold story. This is not something that, that really makes it into First Amendment law and history or immigration law and history, but belongs there. And that's really the purpose of this book, is to kind of bring attention to this kind of unique intersection of First Amendment and immigration law and history. And say this is important. This is something that's also very relevant today, and we need to know its history. This long history includes some familiar figures like Clarence Darrow, Emma Goldman, Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin, Carlos Fuentes, Francis Perkins, J. Edgar Hoover, and some less familiar like Louis F. Post, Ernest Mandel, Senator Patrick McCarran, Carol King, and Leonard Boudin. What I do is I argue that ideological restrictions were passed or revised in the name of national security during wartime or on the brink of war, in the aftermath of a dangerous act or act of violence, in an economic Mm -hmm, depression, mm -hmm. amid labor strikes and um, upheaval, and that these restrictions are enduring tools um, of political repression used to suppress the threat of dissent, including criticism of the United States and its politicians' laws and policies, challenges to the status quo and capitalism, calls for reform or revolution, or associations with anarchist, communist, or terrorist organizations. Now, this enduring tool is used to uh, suppress dissent and um, is a form of political repression. And it lasts for so long because the majority of the Supreme Court has interpreted ideological restrictions as an immigration issue and not as a First Amendment issue, applying applying uh, immigration legal doctrine, which requires judicial deference to the legislative and executive branches to pass or enforce exclusions and deportations. And it insulates these restrictions from substantive judicial review and strict scrutiny under First Amendment legal standards. And so what you find is is that because it's interpreted, uh, these restrictions are interpreted as uh, an immigration rather than First Amendment question, the immigration legal doctrine helps 
it endure and perpetuate ideological exclusion and deportation to be used as a tool to suppress dissent um, and uh, as a form of political repression. Okay, well, let's take the buzzkillers back to, uh, well, frankly, the beginning, as you say, in 1798. What, what happens? How does it all sort of start off? So the book begins um, in 1798, uh, addressing the Alien Friends Act. Some mm-hmm. of your listeners will um, recall that the, the Alien Act and the Sedition Act of 1798, during this divide between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans um, in the 1790s, and we're on the brink of this kind of of war with France. And so there's a punishment of criticism of the government under the Sedition Act. And then there's the authority granted to the president, President John Adams, under the Uh. Alien Friends Act uh, to deport those foreigners he deemed dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States or had reason to suspect um, are concerned in any treasonable or secret machinations against the government. And that that act, the Alien Friends Act, gives Adams ultimate discretion and authority to decide who can stay or who had to go. And it's unchecked power um, that's granted by Congress and held by President Adams. And so there's real concern by Democratic Republicans over the, this tremendous power and discretion held by the executive as a violation mm-hmm. of the separation of powers and undermining checks and balances. Now, we don't really hear much about the Alien Friends Act because Adams ends up not deporting anyone under this act. And the focus oh, okay. usually during this period is on the Sedition Act um, and the prosecutions under the Sedition Act. But what I present in uh, my chapter, chapter one, um, which covers this period, is that we need to really look more at the Alien Friends Act. And the, the lack of deportations was not for a lack of trying. Adams and his Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, do attempt to deport. In fact, I display in Chapter 1 a blank warrant of deportation signed by John Adams. Um, what you see wow. here is that, yeah, and what you see here, it was a great find. It was a great, uh, it was a great get from the Massachusetts Historical Society. And what you find is, is that the, the administration, the Adams administration, is using the Sedition Act and the Alien Friends Act to suppress criticism and dissent, and uh, they're kind of working together on it. And so, they're for for particular reasons, uh, no one is deported. Um, but there are definitely cases that I include in attempts to deport and this relationship between the Sedition Act and the Alien Friends Act. More importantly, what you have is this focus on this unlimited, unchecked discretion held by the executive, as well as the the constitutional justifications for the passage of the Alien Friends Act. In Congress, during debates, there's a focus on the power under in the Constitution for the federal government to regulate commerce with foreign nations, as well as the articulation that as a national sovereignty, it has an inherent right, the United States has an inherent right to self-preservation. Now, the regulation of immigration isn't explicitly in the Constitution, 
Um, uh-huh. so there has to be some kind of constitutional justification for any kind of immigration regulation. But what we see is that there's an articulation of that uh, constitutional basis for regulation in the debates over the passage of the Alien Friends Act. And so what ends up happening is it expires, but that, that constitutional justification comes back in the late 19th century when the federal government begins to regulate immigration. And that's where the, the, the end of that first chapter establishes a legal doctrine based on self-preservation and national sovereignty, later called the plenary power doctrine, which gives the United States the right to exclude and later deport and judicial deference to Congress to pass such restrictions and the executive Mm -hmm. to enforce them and make decisions on whom to expel, admit, or exclude. And this is the, the constitutional legal justification for all federal immigration restrictions. And so we oh. enter, the, yeah, enter, yeah, the, the, the 20th century ready with this kind of constitutional legal doctrine uh, supporting immigration restrictions, ready to ideologically deport and start a kind of a number of different statutes that are going to support ideological exclusion and deportation in the 20th century and now into the 21st. So this is very important. The Alien Friends Act and kind of the the articulation of this doctrine in the late 19th century is very important to the story and is often overlooked, not really Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. thought about in terms of uh, immigration history um, and law, but particularly not really thought about when we talk about ideological exclusion, deportation cases, and yet is so essential. Well, and this brings us right up to the, as you say, the late 19th century and all these sorts of restrictions that start to be put into place and these restrictive practices that start to be put into place and and what you call effectively the ideological immigration war on anarchy. What was that all about? So this is chapter two, War and Anarchy, and it begins with the assassination of President William McKinley in 1901 by a self-proclaimed uh-huh. anarchist named Leon Cholgosh. And Leon Cholgosh states that one of the speeches delivered by notorious anarchist leader Emma Goldman said set him on fire. Mm-hmm, and what this mm-hmm. leads is this, this assassination by this anarchist leads the United States to pass anti-anarchist measures, including the very first ideological exclusion law in the United States, um, which bars anarchists from our shores. And that case, a challenge to an exclusion under that law, gets up to the Supreme Court. And so that what this chapter oh, does okay. is talks about this war on anarchy in the United States, but also introduces the ideological exclusion as part of this war on anarchy. And it's fast. This story is fascinating because what you, you have is Leon Shogosh, who uh, the press notes has a foreign sounding name, was born <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the United States. And so any kind of ideological exclusion or even deportation would not have applied to him. And right. yet what we have is we have this kind of um, conflation with foreigners and radicalism where foreigners and this kind of fear of subversion of radicalism, foreigners are are viewed as kind of importers and spreaders of radicalism and dissent. And so um, in addition to criminalizing 
anarchy in the United States um, under state law. So we have New York's criminal anarchy law comes a year later in 1902. Mm-hmm. But you also have this focus on immigration restriction. And so we have the, Il- the Alien Immigration Act of 1903, which is the first ideological exclusion um, provision, and that uh, provides for the exclusion as well as the deportation of foreign anarchists and also prevents anarchists from naturalizing, becoming citizens. And so what we have is that in addition to um, exploring the passage of this law and anarchism outside and inside the United States, you also have the story of John Turner, who's an English trades unionist, um, and his exclusion under this law and the challenge to it. We have the the creation of the first um, free speech organization, the Free Speech League, and the famous defense attorney Clarence Darrow comes to Turner's aid and represents him, and they take the challenge under the First Amendment up to the Supreme Court. And what you find is, is that the Supreme Court basically says, you know what, those outside of the United States, foreigners who are wishing admission um, to the United States, have no constitutional rights. And that uh, they can't challenge their exclusion under the First Amendment. They don't have any First Amendment rights. And so in this case, the Supreme Court reaffirms the right to exclude under the plenary power doctrine, and that a First Amendment challenge cannot be brought by the foreigner who is excluded. And the chapter ends with a a return to kind of Emma Goldman and uh, the effort, the successful effort to denaturalize her and leaving her vulnerable to deportation during the Red Scare, which some of your listeners may be familiar with and which I address in chapter three. Yeah, we've done uh, shows on the Red Scare and on, on anarchy in general. And it's one of those things I think that's so important in American history, but gets effectively swamped by the the you know the horrors of world wars one and two and this you know the ideology the ideology behind them so i think that one of the things that your book is so clear on is that we need to pay a lot of attention to that war on anarchy period oh absolutely and what you find is is that each chapter because i'm tracing law each chapter Mm -hmm. builds on the previous chapter one cannot really understand this mass kind of deportation effort during the Palmer raids and following uh, the Red Scare in, in 1919 and the successful deportation of Emma Goldman and her comrade Alexander Berkman without understanding this longer history of uh, anti-anarchist sentiment and restriction. And also the fact that Emma Goldman is able to be deported under a revision to the law that happens in in, uh, 1918, but because she was denaturalized during this this first kind of decade um, after the assassination of President McKinley in 1901. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of begins to work together. And uh, a young whippersnapper um, who has is, who is become involved in the investigation of enemy aliens during World War I named J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, is that the guy, one, yeah. Right, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover is uh, the one who uh, works with Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer of the Palmer Raids. And it's J. Edgar Hoover that helps orchestrate the successful deportation of Emma Goldman. And well, so it, we see, yeah, so what we see is, is that there's, there's kind of this long line that, that ideological exclusion deportation runs throughout our understanding of kind of civil liberties and um, American history. Well, this is probably a good for, place for us to take a little break and then be back in a moment. 
I know it's difficult to believe buzzkillers, but even I need help sometimes with my website and with promoting my brilliant ideas on social media. As witty and as creative as I am, my website and my social media accounts need young, vibrant, and intelligent professionals to make sure I'm on brand, as they say in the biz. That's where Missy and Katie, the geniuses at Sidekick Media, come in. They put the multi in multimedia. Sidekick Media Services offers one-stop shopping for your media and promotional needs. They have flexible plans and a la carte options crafted specifically with you in mind. Whether you're looking for a one-time promotional video for your company's YouTube campaign or a monthly episodic audio podcast, Sidekick Media Services will work with you to make it happen. So go to SidekickMediaServices.com and get a free quote for your project, your business, or your organization. If it's easier, visit ProfessorBuzzkill.com and click on the Sidekick Media Services logo in the sponsors section next to the Buzzkill bookshelves. Let Sidekick Media be the sidekick to your superhero project. Okay, Buzzkillers, we're back with Dr. Julie Rosecrout, who's talking to us about her new book, Out Today, that is Today, The Threat of Dissent, A History of Ideological Exclusion and Deportation in the United States. We were talking about this war on anarchy, and it, it never ceases to amaze me that there's this ideological outburst, you know, sort of in this period. But perhaps the biggest ideological outburst, at least in the popular mind, is what comes out of Europe during World Wars One and Two, and it wouldn't surprise me if the Buzzkillers thought there there would be a lot of ideological immigration restrictions and exclusions in this period. But as we always say, it's so much more complicated, and that's why we have you on the show because you're the expert. Well, it is complicated, but it's also fascinating. And uh-huh. so, um, what you have is in in chapters three and four, I cover World War One and going into the 1930s and into World War Two. So mm-hmm. those those two chapters work very well together. And again, also building on chapter two with the war on anarchy. Now, what you have is the restrictions and the ideological deportation, including denaturalization. Um, and the passage, revision, and enforcement of ideological restrictions during World War One. Uh, people will, will, may recall the Espionage Act, the Sedition yeah. Act of 1918. Uh, but that's, that, there's, there is a push to deport and denaturalize, and specifically anarchists and wobblies, the members of the industrial workers of the world, right, um, right. and those who are su- supporting uh, the Bolsheviks and then uh, members of or associated with the Communist Party, which is new. And so what you have mm-hmm. is, is that chapter really explores this push to deport and denaturalize during the war, and particularly after the war, after the Red Scare and during what was, became known as the Palmer Raids, led by Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer and mm-hmm. J. Edgar mm-hmm. Hoover, and this shift from focus on anarchists and wobblies to Bolshevik supporters and members or associates of the Communist Party. And so the real focus of these, uh, of this chapter is looking at the, the change, the revision, interpretation of ideological restrictions, the actual law, which is going to enable um, officials to deport and denaturalize more. Um, but you also have to focus on those officials who are in these positions and the discretion that they have to deport or denaturalize less. 
And so right, part of right. this, the, the chapter is a focus on the Assistant Secretary of Labor, Louis F. Post, who I actually introduced in the Turner case in um, the War and Anarchy chapter. And he comes back as this Assistant Secretary of Labor, and he actually prevents a lot of deportations during this period in 1920, which he recalls the deportations delirium, which is the result of these Palmer raids. What he does is he interprets the law in a particular way to prevent deportations, that a lot of those who are arrested for deportation out of the country under uh, the Anarchist Exclusion Act of 1918 don't fall squarely within that act, and that's through the interpretation of Louis F. Post, his interpretation, mm-hmm. understanding of the law. And he comes under fire for this. Accusations by Palmer and members of Congress, and uh, they're trying to impeach him for failing to deport more. Um, and he survives those efforts. That's something that we, we often don't think about, which is the power that some of these officials have when they're making their decisions and the discretion that they hold to deport less or deport more. And what we, I picked that up a bit um, in chapter four, which goes into the 1930s during the Great Depression. And we yeah. have another labor official. We have the first woman in a presidential cabinet, Frances Perkins, Secretary of Labor under Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And she, like Louis F. Post, is very active in her interpretation of um, immigration law, and she's known for also um, trying to get more refugees into the country using her power, but also she's known for preventing or at least trying to delay the deportation of an Australian labor leader named Harry Bridges. Right, And so I talk a bit about, in that chapter, her use of discretion in the Bridges case, and um, also that she comes under fire and faces impeachment in Congress for her decisions. <laughs> so what you, what you have is, is, is it's very interesting in terms of where you see these kinds of parallels, but with an emphasis on the law itself, a push for revision of that law, and also an examination of the use of discretion under that law. Now, between these two chapters, what's also interesting is we have new organizations that are forming to provide defense of civil liberties as well as um, those facing deportation. So in chapter three, um, I talk about the formation of the American Civil Liberties Union. And then later on in chapter four, I talk about the American Committee for Protection of Foreign-Born. And both of these organizations are defending civil liberties, but also ideological deportation. And a lot of people don't think about ideological restrictions in terms of the formation of the ACLU, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but it's very, it's essential uh, to understanding um, its history and the creation of that organization, um, because it's happening right around the same time as we have these mass deportations uh, that are going on in 1920. And so what we have is the introduction of those organizations as well as other figures. So with the, the, the found, the, we have the founder of the ACLU, um, Roger Baldwin. We also have a very famous immigration attorney who is the legal counsel for the American Committee for Protection of Foreign-Born, handling deportation cases. And this mm-hmm. attorney, this immigration attorney, is a woman. 
is, uh, oh. and her name is Carol Weiss King, and she becomes the most important immigration attorney in the United States in the 1930s and 1940s and into um, the 1950s. And so um, we, I also not only talk about uh, Frances Perkins and her role, but also Carol Weiss King and her defense of Harry Bridges. And so it's a very interesting mm. look as we go through this narrative of how a lot of these time periods um, are connected through law, through organizations, and through people over the course of time. Does World War II, the, the outbreak of World War II anyway, intensify these things? Or is it just, I mean, I mean, what I think buzzkillers are getting from this is that the government is almost always paying a lot of attention to this. It isn't just when there are outbreaks of of wars, the concentration on the war anarchy in, in the teens, there's the concentration on uh, labor leaders during the, the depression. It's not something that just comes up when there's a Hitler on the scene, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. And what I argue is that there is a kind of a continuum. Um, but what people often forget is that there's a lot of anti-communism going on yeah, uh, yeah. In, you know, in the 20s, but especially in the 30s. And so there's a focus on labor. There's, there's also a focus on the communist infiltration of labor and this concern over fascism and communism as the fifth column. So in terms of fear of subversion, that continues and is very strong in the 1930s. And so that also plays a role in this uh, focus on labor, but also focus on use of ideological deportation, as well as denaturalization, leaving one vulnerable to deportation down the line. Uh, uh During the 1930s, it's going to continue then and intensify even more in the 1950s. Well, that then leads us to the to the Cold War, because after all, you know, I just said to the buzzkillers that, that, that there's the, uh, there's the ideological outbursts of Hitler and Stalin. But of course, the Cold War is almost all ideology. Oh, yes. I mean, this is this is an ideological war. Mm-hmm. And it's something that that when, when historians talk about the Cold War, you know, this, depending on when, when it begins, you know, is this <laughs> something that, that, that begins really um, with the Russian Revolution? Or is this something that really, you know, most people think about kind of the late, officially the late 1940s. But what I demonstrate is that this anti-communism begins, well, you know, in terms of the anti-Bolshevik sentiment and the anti-communism even back into the 1920s. And so again, we're seeing more of a kind of a continuum. But we, 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 the the Cold War um, por- portion of my book, despite this continu- continuum, really uh, is focused on in, in chapters five, six, and seven. And so mm-hmm. chapters five, the Iron Curtain of the West, begins in the late 1940s, but picks up. It picks up with a lot of the law that I've introduced in the 1930s, but also in, in, in 1940, um, and the use of that existing law to deport. And what we find is that in the beginning in the late 1940s and into the 1950s, we have new law that's now going to explicitly exclude or deport those associated um, with uh, communist organizations um, and those who are advocating world communism. And we find this in the passage of the Internal Security Act of 1950, known as the McCarran Act, and the Immigration Nationality Act of 1952, known as the McCarran-Walter Act. Um, And so you find a lot of kind of the, the exclusions 
and deportations under the Immigration Nationality uh, Act, this McCarran-Walter Act. And in the, that, that chapter, I talk about a number of examples of familiar figures that are, are part of this story, including the British writer Graham Greene, who has difficulty obtaining oh, yeah, a visa yeah. uh, to enter the United States based on um, a very brief membership in the Communist Party when he was a, a young man. I think it was like a month-long membership. And uh, he has difficulty. Charlie Chaplin is denied re-entry. We should remind the buzzkillers that Charlie Chaplin is British. Most people think of him as American, but he's... Oh, do that? Oh, British, no, yeah. no, no, no. I think he's, most uh, people think of him as American. But. <laughs> yeah, no, Charlie Chaplin is British, comes over to the United States, never becomes a citizen, right. um, but a beloved actor and so important to American film, but also internationally, you know, renowned. And he is uh, accused of a leering and sneering attitude toward the United States. And so when he when he leaves on a um, tour to promote one of his films in 1952, uh, the attorney general uses the law and uh, basically bars his reentry, requiring Chaplin to prove his worth and right to enter uh, under an examination about his kinds of morals and values um, and maybe sympathies to communism. And Chaplin refuses. He refuses yeah. to undergo any of that kind of uh, examination, says, you know what? If you don't, if you don't want me here, fine. And he lives abroad. He doesn't. You know, he doesn't return to the United States until maybe twenty years later to accept um, an award. But that that as a lot of people, when they think about Charlie Chaplin, they don't know the story, and yet it is a very important story yeah, um, oh, yeah. in terms of this concern, this anti-communist fervor and sentiment, and how that plays out in law, and is part of uh, the story of ideological restrictions in this country. There's also concern from the scientific community. Oh, 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 and so what? What's happening is is that um, recall that 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 these exclusions also can affect you know writers and artists and actors as well as scientists, and so there's a real concern with the visa denials based on associations and um, memberships and views of those atomic scientists. So in an, in, in an issue of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, there's a whole series of articles addressing ideological exclusion in the United States and the damage Mm-hmm. That is done mm-hmm. to scientific discovery and collaboration and the embarrassment and shame from uh, American uh, scientists when one of their colleagues abroad is denied or has difficulty obtaining a visa and the damage it's doing to um, the United States reputation. And this is a sure, major sure. concern in terms of our understanding of scientific discovery and um, this exchange with scientists abroad and the ability to do their work. But it, it proves a very embarrassing thing. And I, you have also have the scientists who are trying to obtain a visa asked about their affiliations and their memberships and their views on American foreign policy, and they right. find it intrusive, intrusive and um, embarrassing and very nerve-wracking, and there are tremendous delays in trying to obtain a visa, and so it affects many people in the United States, feel direct effect on these types of exclusions. Sure. And then, of course, there's a concern about deportations, and those who've been living here for decades now facing deportation 
under these new laws. So there's a, there's a real concern um, within the United States about the effect of ideological exclusion deportation uh, during the 1950s and into the 1960s. Well, we see a bit of a change here in the right. 1960s under the Kennedy administration. And in the Kennedy administration, there's a real push by President Kennedy, who is already focused on repealing immigration restrictions and mm-hmm. uh, calling mm-hmm. for immigration reform. He is very concerned about um, the damage to America's reputation and some of these concerns about the the hindering of scientific discovery and um, the fact that we are portraying ourselves through ideological exclusion as a fearful, insecure country, not a nation of immigrants. Right. Yeah. yeah, There's a real concern. So he with with a new head of of, uh, security and consular affairs, uh, Abba Schwartz, used Mm -hmm. the law and use discretion and waivers of inadmissibility to get more people into the United States and to kind of overcome some of these ideological exclusions and restrictions. What you find, though, is that those efforts are important and they're good. They're using the law and they're trying to use the discretion held by executive officials to admit more individuals who would be barred otherwise under the McCarran-Walter Act. But you also find that the Supreme Court is still applying and adhering to the plenary power doctrine. And it's still insulating ideological restrictions under this deference to Congress and to the executive and is not applying more progressive First Amendment standards. What you find is is that over the course of the 1960s, as the Supreme Court begins to issue more speech-protective First Amendment protections, legal standards that's going to um, strike down guilt by association and restrictions on communist speech, those don't apply to ideological exclusion. And the ideological exclusion deportation provisions are still on the books within the McCarran-Walter Act, which has not been repealed. And so you go into uh, the late 1960s and and into the 1970s and into the 1980s with the McCarran-Walter Act throughout the Cold War with these provisions. And so Chapter 6, where I talk about McCarranism revisited, you have the Nixon administration using one of those provisions to bar a Belgian Marxist economist named Ernest Mendel from the United States. So what I, what I do in uh, Chapters uh, 6 and 7 is I trace a little bit of the use of, of the ideological exclusion provisions under the Nixon administration and under the Reagan administration. And what I address Mm -hmm. is the legal challenges to those restrictions based on Americans' First Amendment right to hear and to receive information, as well as the efforts in Congress to repeal those restrictions in the 1980s. Okay, well, we don't want to give away too much about the Cold War, because in many ways, this is this is one of the many meaty parts of the book, and, and Buzzkiller should read it and and understand all the complications and the depths of of all this stuff. Uh, but as I say, we do want them to get the book. So, can we talk about the next and possibly crowning chapter in the book, which is the what, the way in which you explain how all these developments work when it comes to the war on terror in the late 
at the end of the century and the beginning of the 21st century? Absolutely. What I think, by the time the reader gets to the war on terror, he or she should feel very familiar with some of these underlying dynamics right. at play. And this, the book concludes with the war on terror such that we have already seen a little bit of a transition from communism to terrorism, even before we enter the war on terror in the 21st century. Um, but uh -huh. what we see now is that there's a focus on terrorism, but also a use of ideological exclusion, again, as a, a tool of, of political repression to suppress dissent and criticism of the United States and its policies. And so by the time you get to the war on terror, if you understand this history, having read the book, having uh, looked at some of these cases, having understood how the law is implemented and is challenged, then mm -hmm. what you see is, is that while the object of fear has changed to terrorists, and while we also have now the entry of the internet and social media as uh, also tools to be used to help ideological, uh, ideologically exclude and deport, that the dynamics and the motivations remain the same. And so as we get into now the Trump administration um, and continuing in the war on terror, what seems as new in terms of this travel ban and the use of extreme vetting in visa evaluations and denials uh, right. should, seem very, should seem very familiar. And you have those who are challenging those actions who are actually drawing upon the past. Uh, oh, right. Oh, okay. And, and you, have, you have lawyers who, the recent past in terms of uh, previous cases during the George W. Bush administration, but also mm -hmm. to the Cold War period. And they're saying, we've seen this before. We've seen um, restrictions and immigration restrictions and, and uh, efforts to exclude based on a fear of subversion and uh, xenophobia and a use of one's ideas and views, expressions um, and associations to exclude or bar from this country. And we see the effect of it. And so this isn't new, and yet we need to continue to challenge it. Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up because, you know, it is so essential to think that, yes, it, we see all this stuff seems very new, but as you point out very clearly, in many ways, it goes back to 1798 and, and it ramps up during all these other periods. But it, so it just remains for me to say thank you, Dr. Kraut, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. We want to remind the Buzzkillers that the book is on the Buzzkill bookshelf, that it's, uh, again, this is, I think, maybe the only show we've ever done where the, we, it's actually kind of come out on the book's release date. And by the way, it's already received tremendous reviews and tremendous press. Uh, I notice on Amazon and other places, you must be very pleased with that. I'm so happy that some of these scholars who have uh, reviewed the book believe that it makes an important contribution to our understanding of um, American history, but also immigration, right. First Amendment law and history. Well, and we, and we hope that you'll be willing to come back on the show to talk about some of these things in more detail now that the buzzkillers understand the full scope of ideological immigration restrictions. I would love to, and I hope they enjoy the book. It's a fun read and a an compelling and rich narrative, and um, I wrote it 
primarily for those um, who uh, would be interested in the subject and also maybe a little unfamiliar with the law, but uh, Mm -hmm. want to learn a little bit more and are fascinated by uh, the figures and the organizations and the people involved in this story. Well, that's what we're here for. We're here to explain, we're here to try to present very, very complicated things to listeners in in a way that they can understand. So again, thank you very much, Dr. Kraut. And we'll say to the buzzkillers out there that we will talk to you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.